on a scale of zero to 10, with like 10 being you're ravenous and zero being you are not hungry at all, you should be entering into your meal at like a four to a six. You shouldn't be getting into a meal and you're at like a nine or a 10, or that means that you've gone way too long and that you've hit that low blood sugar state. perfection be the enemy of the good. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything, and I'm here each week to dive deeper into how we can find happiness and health inside and out through self-love, body positivity, and discovering new ways to be our best selves. Before we get started, a reminder, this podcast is for general educational purposes and is not intended to diagnose, advise, or treat any physical or mental illness. And while Lauren is a registered dietitian and functional nutritionist, she's not yours. So we always recommend that you see a licensed health professional accordingly. That said, Lauren, nope, I'm going to say it wrong. Hold on. I'm going to think about how you told me to say it. Papanos. Did I do it? Papanos. Papanos is a registered dietitian, published hormone health researcher. We're going to talk about that study later. Certified specialist in sports dietetics and founder of Functional Fueling Nutrition is here to share the truth of hormone balancing foods and metabolic health in general. And we're going to tackle, I'm sure as you can tell by the title of the show, What is happening in the news right now as we're recording is Gwyneth Paltrow's recent interview, and we're going to talk about the science of that, as well as just my personal and perhaps, Lauren, your personal opinion on what drives us women especially to make some of the decisions that might not actually be in our own best health benefit for other benefits. But before we get into all of that, Lauren, as a lifelong You have, no surprise, been an all-around achieving woman. So now you've got a master's degree in integrative nutrition and more than 10 advanced educational trainings on hormone health and root cause medicine. But it wasn't always that way for Lauren, as most of us, has been through the ringer with all the wellness things while struggling with cystic acne and explicable fatigue hormonal weight gain, and ongoing stomach issues. So after spending years bouncing between Western doctors and integrative practitioners, you became a registered dietitian to figure out your own stuff and help other women provide the research back, but also empathetic and holistic support that you were looking for. And I'm assuming you got to the root of your problems and feel better now. Yes. Okay, great. (laughs) Lifelong, Lifelong journey, right? Yes. Well, not lifelong for you. You're a youngin still, but that's okay. It's it. No matter how long it takes, it always feels like forever when you don't feel your best. So I can understand how now you run Functional Feeling Nutrition, which is a San Diego based and virtual private nutrition coaching practice, helping all of us decipher the real data on our hormones and implement tangible, holistic lifestyle shifts so that we can go from frustrated to high functioning. And we're hoping that we all finish this podcast feeling empowered, as always, not here to give guilt or shame. What I love, Lauren, is that you cut through some of the wellness influencer noise and non-science-backed information to provide data-driven information that is digestible, pun intended, so that you can see what's actually going on in your body and understand how to heal from within. So as we know, not all of this work is physical. Some of this work is emotional and mental, and we'll touch on all of that. But I do want to mention that Lauren has been featured in top publications like Shape, Pop Sugar, Daily Mail, Today's Dietitian, and the International Journal of Exercise Science, yes, PubMed that I mentioned earlier. You're also the host of Strength in Hormones podcast and listeners, you can find Lauren on Instagram as Nutrition with Low. And I want to welcome you to the show, Lauren. I know that's a big, long bio, but can you tell us more about yourself and the work that you do with our listeners? Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. And I'm really thrilled for our conversation today. But as you alluded, you know, I was already on the path to become a registered dietitian. And as I was on the path, I started learning that a lot of what I was dealing with was abnormal. And I just didn't know because 
I was so immersed in really pop culture and, you know, was very much focused on, okay, if you look okay physically, then you must be functioning well internally, right? And I didn't know there was another way to view things and that's completely not the truth and that you can be completely, you know, functioning not well internally and look different than you maybe than you feel, right? And so I was in school to become a registered dietitian and I started, you know, dealing with all of these different hormone and digestive issues and skin issues and, you know, was bouncing around different doctors and really couldn't find any solutions. And so that was what kind of set me into starting research and starting to get mentorship and all these advanced certifications in functional medicine and women's health and all these different things because I not only was trying to solve my own issues, but also was like, I have to help other women do this in a way that's a an empathetic approach. You know, I think that that data and science is always going to drive the protocols that I'm walking someone through. But I really try to find like, what is that balance between also treating someone as a whole person and like really taking into account how, you know, some of the things that you're doing is really impacting the way that they feel internally too. So, you know, that's kind of how I started my practice. And initially I was working as a sports dietitian and that's why I have like my board certification and you know, I started doing research in athletes because I was an athlete in college and I was seeing these issues pop up a lot in some of my teammates. And that was what really led me into that population. And then after about five years of working with that population, I realized, you know what, this is actually an issue that's happening, not just in athletes. This is happening with women of all ages and all backgrounds and all activity levels. And I don't want to just help active people. I want to help women that are struggling in all capacities. And so that's really how I've spent the last three or so years as, you know, my private practice owner and as a dietitian is helping women ages like 25 to 55 that may be an athlete or maybe, you know, haven't been able to exercise in multiple years because they've been so ill. I think it makes a lot of help given your history. And I think a lot of the people that I talk to on the podcast all end up somewhere along the path because somewhere or another, we're trying to help ourselves or a loved one. And I think that drives a lot of our motivation when we're coming from a place of truly trying to be of service in the work that we do. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and because I knew that we were talking today and because of what's going on in the world, I really wanted to try to dive into from a scientific, non-judgmental perspective, something that's kind of going on the world. And that is everybody is talking about Gwyneth Paltrow's recent interview with Dr. Cole, who also has his own podcast. And I think that video clip was from the podcast. So in all full disclosure, I have not listened to the full podcast, but I have seen the clip and I have seen a lot of people responding to the clip. So there's a couple different ways that I want to talk about this, but I want to start off by saying that Dr. Cole is in quotation marks because he is not a medical doctor. So let's be clear. He's from his website, received his doctorate from Southern California University of Health Sciences. And he says, I do not practice medicine and I do not diagnose or treat diseases or medical conditions. My services are not meant to substitute or replace those of a medical doctor. So first and foremost, just like we say here, if you have a medical condition, whether, you know, you're trying to find diet advice or any sort of medical condition. So, for example, Gwyneth went on to later say that some of the things that she was talking about were intended to be treatments for long COVID inflammation. I am not a medical professional. I highly encourage you to work with one. I have long COVID and long-time listeners, you know that I am listening and working with my doctor to treat some of this stuff as well as working on lifestyle and different holistic things. So I do understand kind of where someone would be coming from and working with food and lifestyle and different things to improve their health. We know, for example, getting a good night's sleep is going to be helpful. But what was interesting to me is that for those not familiar, the interview went viral because Gwyneth was discussing eating pretty limited food. She was talking about fasting for a majority of the day, drinking broth for lunch, having a small dinner, and then talked about doing a nutrient IV during the interview itself. And later, after backlash, went on to state that this protocol was recommended because of her inflammation. And Dr. Cole claims to be an expert, according to his website, which I'm not sure is possible how that's possible without giving medical advice, but 
says that he's an expert with thyroid issues, autoimmune conditions, hormonal imbalances, digestive disorders, and brain problems. He encourages keto in what he calls intuitive fasting, which I don't know if you're on the podcast listening, you're not going to see my eye roll, but trust it is there. So Lauren, I know you specialize in hormone health. I'd love to get your opinion on what we know about the science of specifically women's health as it relates to hormones with long-term intermittent fasts and extreme caloric deficits and nourishment via IVs versus digestion. So all of these kinds of things that we're seeing in this very short clip, curious how that manifests itself in the work and the research that you've done. Definitely. Well, I think that fasting is just so popular. And although there is some good research as it relates to fasting, majority of the research has been done in male populations and it's not been done in women, especially not during your reproductive years. And we know that fasting and dietary restriction and especially under eating from specific macronutrients like carbohydrates and fat in particular really do a lot of damage on how neuropeptides in the brain are communicating with the endocrine system and ultimately can really dismantle how your sex hormones, adrenal hormones like cortisol and adrenaline and thyroid hormones are functioning. And so you know, I think that fasting is kind of trendy and that it really is just like another way for someone to undereat, for them to be in a caloric deficit. And, you know, I think that it is probably some people tout it because they think that it's a great way to be able to get to their body composition or their weight goals. But as I alluded to earlier, just because you physically look a certain way doesn't mean that internally everything's functioning well, right? And as a dietitian, I've seen thousands of patients over the years. And I can tell you that some of the people that may look to be so healthy are the ones that are really struggling internally the most. And you really can't judge a book by its cover when it comes to health. And so I think that unfortunately, messaging like this and other messaging, it's not just Gwyneth, it's all over TikTok, social media, Instagram, these really restrictive ways of eating and these really restrictive, you know, practices are really harmful because women think that's what they should be doing too. And, you know, I know that Dr. Cole, he alluded to that everything Gwyneth said was contextual. And of course, anything nutrition or health related, it is, right? It's like, Maybe one component you're doing is for a short period of time to be able to fix something. But I think that Gwyneth didn't realize how much that statement was really going to be impacting other people and how sometimes people don't understand that when you say things like that, that it does need a lot of context around it and that you can't just like come out to millions of people and say that, you know, these are the practices I'm doing because people are ultimately going to be listening and thinking that's what they should be doing too. And I'm not saying what she's doing is right. I'm just saying that if she thinks that's what's helping her, I don't believe that she should be sharing that with other people because it could really harm others. Yeah, I appreciate the kind of the science perspective too on how as kind of a reminder for everybody that these studies that exist have been done mostly on men, but certainly not on women in reproductive age and how much it can affect our body. What we I have put into the show notes a couple of studies that I referenced before, but that show specifically if someone is going to fast, that doing so in the evening instead of the morning is a much better option because studies link eating breakfast before 8.30 with significant health improvements in areas like stress and cortisol, which Lauren, you referred to as having interplay with our hormones in a bunch of different areas. And we've also seen that It can improve mental health and reduce signs of depression and improve physical health as well to include, surprisingly, contrary to what a lot of people will say, eating breakfast before 8.30 a.m. has been shown to improve blood sugar regulation, blood pressure, and metabolism, as well as kind of other risk factors for physical health conditions associated with aging. So while I think there's a lot of information out there for me, Lauren, I know you probably don't know my whole story, but I had a health tank when after paleo for years, I did low carb paleo. And then in order to maintain my weight loss, I had to go to intermittent fasting, low carb paleo into a point where I was barely eating. And what I was eating, I wasn't digesting. It was going right through me and I wasn't properly digesting things. And I had like a thyroid crash and, you know, health wise, 
although I was the thinnest I had been, was probably the the weakest and least energetic I had been in a really long time. And so for me, you know, I have my own personal experience and I can point to that didn't work for me. I don't know truly what works for other people, but I do know that the science, as you said, is not conclusive on the trend being supported as unanimously a great thing. And I think that if you're following celebrities, if you're following wellness influencers and all these kinds of people, that's what you're going to hear. So it's important to understand that, you know, the most science that we have long term is showing based on things that, you know, logically we've been doing for a long time as humans, right? Like our ancestors might have skipped meals and those things occasionally, but not, you know, with intention to basically avoid eating, as you said, like create this deep caloric deficit that can be really problematic for nutrient like nourishing each cell that we have. I think of like feeding myself now as like filling each cell in my body up in a loving way. And so if I'm not eating, then my body can't kind of nourish itself, which I think is important. But Today's podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox, and if your family is anything like mine, you'll love this. Gluten-free chicken nuggets for a year at ButcherBox.com WholeView and use code WholeView. Kiddo doesn't like a lot of protein, but chicken nuggets always does the trick. I literally just watched them eat some after school. I am so jazzed. ButcherBox now has this option, and you can get it in every order for a year. In my opinion, no other delivery service compares to ButcherBox. 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork-raised, crate-free, and wild-caught seafood. Humanely raised, no antibiotics, and added hormones shipped for free, frozen, right to your door in an eco-friendly, 100% recyclable box. There is certified B Corp focused on quality for you, the animal, and the planet. We have a home-cooked meal nearly every day in our home, and it couldn't happen without being able to whip it together quickly from shopping our ButcherBox stocked freezer. When we have what we need at home, we save money, and it's better for us to eat at home. With ButcherBox, all of our family staples, including the kids' beloved smoked salmon, are delivered without my needing to do a thing. In this day and age, any easy button like that is gold. But honestly, it saves us money too. A variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value with member deals. Yes, please. You can choose from a variety of box plan options. We curate a custom one, which can be changed at any time. But lock in and get those free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at ButcherBox.com slash WholeView and use code WholeView. Claim this deal at ButcherBox.com slash WholeView and use code WholeView. I was wondering, so specific to some of this research that breakfast improves health. There's also kind of the areas that I talked about in terms of the potential to improve metabolism, which is one of your areas of experience. And specifically when we're talking about hormones and metabolism and how mechanistically this could work together. So you referred to kind of some of these problems in a scientific way, but I'm wondering if you can kind of go a little more into detail into understanding why that might be the case that someone, for example, would have improved health or improved hormone regulation from having breakfast at 8.30, understanding that it's not specified in the study. You didn't do the study yourself, but based on your experience and knowledge, kind of understanding why that might be the case for someone. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think too to remember that, you know, if we're always thinking, because I am a very like ancestral minded person in a lot of the way that I practice, but I think we always have to remember too that, you know, if we're always thinking ancestrally, that it was a completely different environment. You know, we have so many other chemicals that we're exposed to and stressors in our current day and age that we can't just like copy and paste what, you know, generations before us did and then think that's going to work for us. Right. And that's part of the process of evolution and things. And so as it relates to what you mentioned, you know, not having maybe dinner as late and doing more of like an evening fast to where you wake up and have breakfast the next day. 
it can be supportive. It can be more beneficial than fasting in the morning for sure. But for some people, it really doesn't work. You know, I find that for some women, especially that if they eat dinner at 5 p.m. and then they don't eat again until eight o'clock the next day, they go into a low blood sugar state when they're sleeping. And then they wake up at 2 a.m. because their body naturally gets a cortisol response because every time your blood sugar goes low, your body releases cortisol, which is a stress hormone, to be able to break down sugar or glucose and break it, put it into the bloodstream so that you can maintain physiological levels of blood sugar because your body's always trying to protect you for survival, right? And so low blood sugar is just as harmful as high blood sugar. And a lot of women that I work with, I see that's really at kind of the cornerstone of their hormone issues is that they're getting into this hypoglycemic or low blood sugar state too often, whether it's because they're not eating enough carbohydrate, they're not eating regularly enough, or they're maybe going too long in between meals. And that's what's driving this, right? So again, it's so contextual to like your schedule, your lifestyle, your activity level, your own health state as well. But if we're just thinking about, okay, like why would it be important to have breakfast within the first couple of hours upon rising? The first thing that comes to mind to me is circadian rhythm. And I'm really big on this in that our bodies are all wired on one big clock, right? And so we know that when you first wake up in the morning, when your eyes see the sun, that tells your pineal gland, which is behind your eye, shut off melatonin, which is our sleepy hormone, start making cortisol, which is that like energizing hormone because that's our stress hormone. And we naturally get something that's called a cortisol awakening response. And with that's how all of your digestive, hormonal, metabolic processes turn on. You can Google and find like what that clock looks like, but everyone has like a very rough idea of, you know, at 8 a.m. you are starting to make cortisol and then at 11 p.m. you're starting to make growth hormone. And so all of our hormones are very much like wired on these internal clocks. So if we eat breakfast, then we're helping be able to mitigate this really big cortisol response from continuing to happen which is then going to impact how a lot of our sex hormones and thyroid hormones are made. And so by having that breakfast there, we're putting the body into a really good pattern within our circadian rhythms. And then that's going to also set you up for success in terms of following, continuing to follow those rhythms throughout the day. We know that the body works really well with consistent routines. And so one of the things that we know from research that really impacts how our metabolism functions is big shifts in when you eat throughout the day or when you wake up, when you go to sleep. And we know that by trying to maintain things within about an hour of when you would normally have breakfast or when you would normally wake up in the morning, we see the best impacts to how hormonal functions are happening because you're really continuing to support those internal clocks. So I guess to make it a little bit more simply, the first bullet I would say is that we don't want to have a cortisol response happening for an extended period of time in the morning. And by eating, we're helping be able to blunt and stop this cortisol response. And the second thing is that we want to eat with our circadian rhythms so that our digestion, metabolic, and hormonal processes are working at the times they should be. That makes a lot of sense that I think is super helpful to understanding how a study might be able to show then that someone who started eating earlier in the day would have lower blood sugar levels and less insulin resistance, not from the perspective of going too low from sleep, like you were mentioning, but from preventing sugar spikes. And I think what's interesting to me is that some of these studies look at like a cardiometric risk or a higher percentage of daily calories consumed. And I know that's my example that I've shared before on the podcast, which is that oftentimes if I don't eat, like if even if I'm not hungry, if I try to stick with, like you're saying, like some sort of schedule with myself, I don't have a gallbladder, I haven't had great, <laughs> I've been immersed in diet culture my whole life. And so my body is all out of whack and doesn't tell me to do the things that it really needs at the right time sometimes. And so I'll need to kind of get myself a smoothie or something for breakfast, even if my body doesn't want it. Because if I don't and I go too long without eating, then I find myself in this kind of like ravage like state where I just I want to binge, but not from the perspective of like an emotional binge from the perspective of my body going into kind of like starvation stress mode and feeling like we haven't been fed in 15 hours. Now we're going to eat all the things. And then I find myself overeating, which makes sense to me why people who aren't using the clock to kind of have a consistent eating schedule and are 
missing large meals and large windows of time in these studies are consuming a higher percentage of daily calories, which is kind of the opposite intention if we're intermittent fasting to kind of reduce our caloric intake and lose weight. And I think it's definitely something that happened to me over time, right? Like at first that was not the case, but then over time as my body started realizing that it wasn't getting what it needed, it built up, became a problem. Have you seen like that kind of example in people where it's not a binge from like an emotional disordered eating perspective, but it still drives someone to overeat because they're trying not to eat. And then it's like, oh, now my body wants the most caloric dense foods it can have because it thinks it's going to get it be fed again for a long time. Yeah. And it's all survival mechanism. And that's hypoglycemia at its finest. That's low blood sugar, right? And our body trying to find the easiest source. And so most people, it's going to be something rich in carbohydrate or rich in sugar because that's the quickest way to be able to get your blood sugar back up. But Unfortunately, if we just follow that and you just eat that way, then once you spike, blood sugar then drops. And then now you're on this, what we call like blood sugar roller coaster, where you're like chasing highs and lows of blood sugar all day long. And so, you know, I really do think that by having kind of these more like scheduled way of eating, it helps be able to just regulate us so that we're just getting like little blips throughout the day when we eat and we're not seeing these big highs and lows happen. But I find that the number one thing I see in women I work with is that they eat lunch at like 12. And then they work, work, they get off work at five or whatever it might be. And then they go home and they make dinner and they can't stop snacking on chips. They eat way more than they've eaten for the rest of the day and more than what their body can metabolize and digest in that meal. And it really just feels like they're not even like thinking or like really able to understand what they're eating in that moment because their body's really just trying to like intake as many calories as possible, right? And the biggest thing that helps women is just by giving them permission that you can and you should have a midday snack, that you should not go seven hours between lunch and dinner. Because naturally, with you're just talking about circadian rhythm, you naturally hit a cortisol dip around two or three. And that's one of the reasons why you go into this like low blood sugar state and why you feel like you need sugar or caffeine or you feel really fatigued. So instead of us just saying, oh, that's what's happening every day and then overriding that, what if we were to say, okay, that's what's happening. What if I got ahead of that and I had a snack, I took like a five minute break, got some like warm, you know, warm sun on my skin, right? And then it helps be able to mitigate that from happening so that you felt stable. You never felt these like intense sugar or like ravenous feelings. And I can tell you that every single woman that does implements it, they're like the number one thing they report is I go to dinner and I'm hungry, but I'm not ravenous and I don't feel like my body's in survival mode. And that's really the state you want to be in. You should on a scale of zero to 10 with like 10 being your ravenous and zero being you are not hungry at all. You should be entering into your meal at like a four to a six. You shouldn't be getting into a meal and you're at like a nine or a 10, or that means that you've gone way too long and that you've hit that low blood sugar state. This podcast is sponsored by Indeed and their instant match feature, which allows you to invite candidates then three times more likely to apply, according to U.S. Indeed data. Hate waiting? Me too. Indeed's U.S. data shows over 80% of Indeed employers find quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. Imagine finding top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools and then having that ideal candidate be three times more likely to apply. Don't spend hours on multiple job sites looking for candidates with the right skills when you can do it all with Indeed. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches your job description and you can invite them to apply right away. I would have loved this feature and definitely applied to any invitation if they'd had this feature back in ye olden days when I got my career break with Indeed. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Indeed knows when you're growing your own business, you have to make every dollar count. And that's why with Indeed, you only pay for quality applications that match your must-have job requirements. Visit indeed.com slash wholeview to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com slash wholeview. Indeed.com slash wholeview. Terms and conditions apply. Cost per application pricing not available for everyone. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
It's hard for me to imagine long term. So I'm going to make an assumption that if Gwyneth Paltrow were on this protocol for more than just, you know, a short term period, and we don't know that we're not her advisors, we're not anything. I'm saying that because I think that people who hear it would implement it and try to do that. And that's a concern for me because as we're talking about that buildup of, okay, someone tries to only have coffee. I mean, I knew so many people who not only would they skip breakfast, but like would consider coffee a meal at 11 so that they could then stretch to lunch at two, for example, or whatever. Right. And then dinner couldn't be at seven or eight because they need their intermittent fasting window to start then. So it was like all they were getting was one meal. And it sounds a lot like what Gwyneth described. So she described kind of intermittent fasting in the morning and having just broth for lunch. So as someone who doesn't drink coffee, like that would be the equivalent of me just having broth for lunch or and she doesn't say soup or anything that her body is digesting and that is very gentle on the stomach broth has a lot of nourishing ingredients like I'm a big fan of collagen I taught I used to be called the bone broth lady like I'm a big fan of broth I'm not a big fan of like broth being the only thing you consume except a small dinner and so it's hard for me to imagine that that would be something that someone could do sustainably for a long time Or, you know, other than trying to reset, like you said, in some sort of elimination diet protocol and and figuring out what's going on with their body. And I think what really then I asked myself is like, why would someone do this? Like, why would someone actively put themselves in a state where they're activating that survival mode that the body is feeling and they're actively going to be fighting against like the stress in all of these things that our body is feeling? And oftentimes then, need to supplement with additional nutrients that our body is depleted in and that can cause other health impairments that we haven't discussed. And in this case, you know, it would look something like, you know, needing to have an IV or needing to take a bunch of supplements at night because you can't make it through the night without waking or you're having restless leg syndrome or a lot of the things that I hear from people who do intermittent fasting long term or are doing keto and not having, you know, sufficient fiber. So they're not having regular bowel movements and digestion. Like there are so many things that I think of that worry me about the situation. And then I'm like, okay, now why would someone do that? Why would someone go through whatever it is they're going through and all of these like roller coasters of feelings, of hormones and all? The additional stress that your body feels when your cortisol is increased and it's not getting the food that it needs. And the only thing that I can think of is that this is really about appearance. This is really about what we look like and not truly how we feel or what our health is. And we see that women in the public eye are constantly criticized. And no matter how someone chooses to live their life, is going to be judged. And there's no, nothing that a woman can do in public opinion that's right, right? We can, no matter what we do, it's always either, you know, we're too thin or too large, too tall or too short. Like there's literally not a single woman in the world who is perfect because perfect does not exist. Even the Kardashians who have set the modern beauty standards Photoshop themselves. And I think the real problem is that I can imagine Gwyneth and other people in Hollywood feeling this pressure to look young, to look thin, to look these things, even if the diet protocols that they're under are depleting their health and their nourishment. I noticed that her hair looks very thin, for example, and that would be something that would happen if she wasn't getting a lot of nutrients. I don't want to, I don't want to judge. I've had thin hair and fallen out hair myself. And I know that comes from my body not properly digesting and needing additional nutrients. So it's just own personal experience and noticing something. And then I can also see how if we are someone who wants to like aspire to someone's beauty standards and to be thin or to be revered as a celebrity was, that we would need to stop doing what we're doing and to take 
dietary advice from a celebrity, which is, I think, where we really get into a lot of problems, right? Like we're looking at wellness influencers because they have a genetic disposition to look a certain way or a celebrity because they look a certain way. And we think, well, we want that. So we're going to do what they're doing. But to your point, Lauren, say that three times fast. That's not necessarily the case for everybody, right? Like everything is bio-individual. What one person does in terms of mint or genetics or whatever is very different from the next. And that's why it's so important to work with an individual who is trained and educated, formally educated in these areas to help us aspire to our own goals. And hopefully those goals are, I want to feel good. I want to live a long, healthy life. I want to have energy and not, I want to look thin. But I think that becomes so conflated, especially in pop culture, talking about celebrities and all that kind of stuff. So I'm curious, Lauren, kind of like what you make of all of that, especially given that, you know, you come from this athletic world where I know a lot of people want to make sure that they're perceived a certain way as well, right? Like that's a whole other kind of can of worms. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I have two two opinions on this. And one of them is that, you know, being that I've worked with professional athletes, been an athlete myself, and I've worked with people that are in the public eye as well that are going to red carpet events and things, I understand the pressure that there exists. And I know that when I was an athlete, I was a competitive college cheerleader. I was a flyer. There was a ton of pressure for me to be a certain weight, to look a certain way to be able to compete at the level that I wanted to. And at some point, even if you know that's not the healthy thing to do, eventually sometimes you pick that as the short-term goal over what is actually healthy for you because of the pressure that you're feeling from outside sources and how badly you want that goal, right? How badly you want that, you want that spot on that team or how badly you want to I don't know, for celebrities, I guess, fit into a dress or for pictures to come back good, whatever that is, that motivation for them. Right. And so I understand what that feels like. And it's a very troubling feeling and not to say that it's good or that it's healthy, but there's some of the most elite athletes in the world. Their diet is is not healthy. And that's because in order for them to compete at that level, I mean, even athleticism, you know, being a competitive athlete isn't healthy. Like no one should exercise that much, right? Like that's not what our bodies were intended to do, right? So I think that there's a lot of pressure. I think that's one thing. I think secondly, also that sometimes, you know, as a dietitian, and by no means am I going to put someone on a fasting and bone broth protocol, but sometimes we do use therapeutic nutrition practices for a short period of time to be able to shift some type of process in the body. So for example, if I'm working with someone that has a digestive disorder, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. If someone's irresponsive to treatment and they've been on many rounds of antibiotics and herbal medications and things, then kind of the last step to be able to provide some different relief for them is to help kind of shut down the digestive system for a short period of time and to really make sure that they're getting their nutrition through peptides to be able to allow the digestive system to heal. And these things are therapeutic and they're done for a short period of time. And the goal is always to get all their foods back into their diet, but to be able to correct or shift some type of imbalance, right? So sometimes there are therapeutic nutrition practices. I don't, hers doesn't really make sense to me. And I don't really, I've never heard of anything like that for long COVID before. There's obviously a lot of like new information that we're even learning about long COVID, you know? But I think the last thing, you know, is that it's so important that we're thinking about our body from the inside out in terms of our health, right? And like you said, I think a lot of people are so focused on how does their body look externally? And even sometimes when people come to work with me, their only goal is to change the way their physical body looks. And I tell them, then you're not a person for me. I can't work. I can't help you with that. If your physical body changes as a secondary effect of your internal functioning improving, I am so happy for you and I'm going to support you and cheer you on and be your biggest cheerleader and encourager. But If we focus just on our external and changing that, one, you're never going to be satisfied. You're never going to be happy. But two, you're likely going to sacrifice your internal health at some point. And the thing with anything in the body is that the body can do something for a short period of time. It's just like why diabetes develops. The pancreas that makes the hormone insulin, it super compensates for a short period of time to be able to offset this really high intake of sugar in the bloodstream. 
And then eventually it fatigues and it's like, I can't do this anymore. And that's when you become insulin resistant. The same thing happens when people go on extreme diets is that short term, usually for about six months, they feel good. Physiologically, they're not seeing any impact. For athletes, their performance looks great. For non-athletes, they're feeling energized. They feel light. Their digestion is working. Hormones are fine. And then all of a sudden they crash and burn because their body just can't keep working this super compensation mode anymore, right? Your adrenals cannot continue to pump out as many stress hormones as you're asking of it. And so we have to remember that just because something you're doing initially maybe feels like that's the solution and it's working, it's not going to work forever unless we really honor what our body needs internally long-term. I so appreciate that and hear what you're saying. And I think it's something we all need a reminder of. And I think one of the reasons that specifically you're a great voice for this conversation is because you openly talk about some of these problems, specifically kind of with health and wellness culture or kind of as you've been describing with where we need to shift our focus into truly focusing and thinking through what our bodies need in order to optimize health. And that's something I know you've gone through your own lived experience. And you've also learned a lot of this stuff and also working with clients. But way back in 2016, there was a study that you published that I'm sure you worked on for years before that as well. And one of the things that I thought was great was this perspective of the purpose of the study being kind of groundbreaking for 2016. Maybe that's a little exaggeration of a word, but I think that the modern understanding of fear of fat has come a very long way since 2016. So the fact that there was this study that you co-authored that addressed that as something that to me says a lot about kind of where your voice and growth has come from in this field and why I think it makes a lot of sense. So I want to talk a little bit more about the study and I want to share the purpose of it, which is that it was to extend our understanding by examining the differential associations between the fear of fat and avoidance motivation and the drive for thinness and approach motivation with self-views of body dissatisfaction, dietary intake, and supplement and physique-related behaviors in competitive athletes. So as someone who was a competitive athlete, I was like Virginia's strongest woman, like I was a strongman competitor. And as much as I would like to say that I only cared about strengths or, you know, my body movements and all these things, it was huge for me to feel like I looked like an athlete and that, you know, I looked strong, but I also looked healthy. Like I remember looking at other strong women who were other competitive athletes and being like, I don't want to look like that. Like there was still a lot of judgment going on in my head, even though I was, could have been focused on myself and my performance and all these things. There was still this both fear of being fat as well as drive for fitness that was motivating a lot of my activity or behaviors, right? Like instead of focusing on some of the areas of training that I could have focused on, I was definitely doing more cardio and things in my training that wasn't really as helpful to the building of strength in order to be the strongest person, but that helped me kind of achieve my goals. And so I was reading the study and I was reflecting back and I was like, gosh, even as someone who was an athlete and in the category that I was in, I didn't have to wait because I was like a, you know, super heavyweight lifter or whatever. Like I didn't have to get on the scale and compete or I didn't have to like hit a number the way that you know, other weight categories of lifters have to hit a number on a scale. And they were the most horrifying habitual things happening when people would train and then need to hit a weight by competition time. And I know that it happens for wrestlers as well, like people doing the most detrimental things to their health. You know, I I remember being horrified by and being like, I don't ever want to hit a lower weight category where I'm going to have to weigh myself because I don't ever want to be tempted to do some of these things. As someone with a history of eating disorders, like that could have taken a really bad toll for me. But I thought to myself, like even as someone in a heavyweight category, 
even as someone in like a strength training thing, which is like the opposite of being a flyer, right? Like I wanted to be big. I wanted to be strong. I wanted to be these things, but I wanted to be lean. And it did 100% occur to me as I was training on, you know, how other people were perceiving me, how I was perceiving other people. And wasn't really a factor that I'd thought about before I kind of like fully was looking more into the study that you did and the results about it. And it kind of changed perspective for me on athlete. I mean, we can look at Michael Feld's abs. We can look at, you know, all these things and might not necessarily think to ourselves, like, is he training to look shredded or is he training to like be shredded to, to be the best? And I think that, you know, that kind of differentiates between who you talk to. But regardless, I know for a fact that, you know, women's gymnastics, I think it was last year or the year before, was like this huge thing about their mental health and their bodies and different kinds of things that people were talking about and judging. I'm like, these women can do incredible things. I know you've done gymnastics before. You've got to like have appreciation for some of the things that these professional gymnasts do. And the fact that people are focused on their bodies or that they're worried about their bodies or that they have eating disorders in that way, it's just it both like drives this anchor in me, but also reminds me how very far we still have to go. And I know the study was from 2016, but I'm wondering if you could kind of share more about that and maybe what you've seen as your practice has changed and as you've grown and become more educated since then, like what, how this has come into your life and played in some of these different ways. This podcast is sponsored by Just Thrive. Use code WHOLEVIEW for 15% off at justthrivehealth.com. And if you missed last week's episode 54 on heavy metals and chocolate, check out the interview with the founder, Tina. I take this probiotic every day and recommend it to all my skincare clients because your gut health impacts literally everything. Your well-being, your mood, your digestion, and we learned so much more about that last week. With all the health areas we're talking about today... And as we went into the science in last week's show, our gut houses up to 80% of our immune system, and a healthy gut is truly the gateway to feeling your best. With Just Thrive Probiotic, it's easier to give your gut what it needs to thrive, scientifically back, and pun intended. Just Thrive's breakthrough award-winning probiotic is the only product in the market with numerous peer-reviewed studies and clinical trials which have showed that Just Thrive Probiotic reduces leaky gut and inflammation, and the spore-based formula or soil-based if you're weary of spores after watching Fungus Zombies in The Last of Us, is groundbreaking in its effectiveness. Guaranteed to arrive 100% alive in your gut and has 1,000 times better survivability versus leading probiotics. It's also the only retail available probiotic containing the proprietary Bacillus Indicus HU36. This super strain produces antioxidants at the site of peak absorption for unmatched digestive, immune, and total body health support. Plus, it's vegan-friendly, gluten-free, dairy-free, histamine-free, and non-GMO. To try it, get 15% off when you go to justthrivehealth.com and use code WHOLEVIEW. That includes bundles and subscriptions, so definitely double up on your savings at justthrivehealth.com slash discount slash WHOLEVIEW with code WHOLEVIEW. Honestly and sincerely, I feel their products making a difference when I take them, and I think you will too. Yeah, I think that scale is pretty profound. There's actually been a lot of research that's been done using that scale because it's a really good way to quantify what is someone's motivator, right? And what we found was that drive through thinness really is the biggest factor that impacts disordered eating or, you know, the way that we kind of classified it was unhealthy, like eating and supplement behaviors or extreme practices in those areas. Right. And it was really fascinating to see that was in both men and women. And I was super curious by this. And I think that, you know, it just being in practice that working with athletes or non-athletes, the drive for thinness always is what is someone's biggest motivator. I think that a lot of people do have a fear of being fat. I, I hate to even say that term, you know, it's like, so like, oh, it doesn't feel good even saying that. But I think a lot of people do have that fear, but that overrides it is this drive to be thin. And like you said, 
there as an athlete or as anyone, I think that there's a huge piece of identity that we bring with us as it relates to our health. You know, I think that as an athlete, you want to identify as looking like an athlete. And then a lot of athletes deal with oh, well, I'm really talented, but I don't look like a gymnast or I don't look like a strong woman. And so that some, sometimes like overrides even the focus on just pure athleticism, right? And it's like kind of the unfortunate truth of what a, a lot of athletes deal with. But I think that even in non-athlete populations, and I see so many women that, you know, they're like, they come to me and they're like, for how much I exercise and for how well I eat, I feel like I should look different. And I'm always thinking to myself, I'm like, I wonder where they got, like, what is that like different? Oh, I 100% like, said that sentence before. Yeah, yes. right? <laughs> Such a common thing. Like, I couldn't tell you how many women have said that to me. Like, I feel like I should look different. And I'm like, what is that? Like, what is that look that is different that you see in your head, right? But that's a motivation. Well, it's on Shape Magazine. It's yeah. on the television for the Olympic performers. It, it's, you know, for me, it was CrossFit competitions, right? It was like all these things of how people looked. And what we don't know about those people is what is going on inside their bodies. And as you said, a lot of those people are the ones who actually have a lot of health issues and challenges, fertility being at the top of that list. But as you've discussed, and maybe it's worth kind of reminding people when we say fertility, whether we're talking about man or woman, this is does not only apply to you if you're trying to get pregnant. Fertility is one of the first red flags that women in childbearing age have on their health being dysregulated in some sort of way. And I think if we thought about it from that perspective, instead of when I was younger and my you know, menstruation was irregular, I was just like, well, that's one less thing I have to worry about then, you know, that I'll have, you know, I'll menstruate less often or you know, whatever it was I was thinking at the time, instead of being like, whoa, this is a warning sign that there are other things going on in my body. And I wish that more people would be able to think those things. And, you know, as an athlete, I think you have to kind of make a decision on performance versus kind of those short-term health. Like, okay, if I'm going to be an athlete for another five or 10 years, am I willing to kind of take the health risk but we see with a lot of professional athletes that they end up with you know heart problems or joint issues or different kinds of things because of the stress that they put on their body over time and as a you know regular everyday person if we start to see those things because we're over exercising or because we're undernourishing our body or because we're doing whatever i think that it's important for us all to understand the full impact that has on our health. And I know as someone with expertise in hormones, maybe you could kind of like recap that for everyone from a perspective of why that would be important, even if they're not trying to have a child. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, you alluded to the fact that in your reproductive years, especially that your reproductive system is, you know, your period in general is what we call like your fifth vital sign, right? It's a sign of vitality in your body. And when the body is under stress, the first thing that's going to become impacted and get shut off is your reproductive system because it's voluntary. You don't need to reproduce in order to stay alive, right? You need your heart, your brain, your kidneys, your lungs, so on and so forth. And so your body's always going to preferentially shunt energy towards those systems that need it, like your brain. And it's going to take that energy away from your reproductive system. If the body senses stress, if it senses, you know, fear or that this isn't a safe place to reproduce because you are under eating, you are malabsorbing, you are over exercising, you're not sleeping enough, then you're not going to be able to reproduce. And for me, that was how it showed up in my hormone levels was that I was training many hours per day when I was in college. I was eating healthy, but it was according to what a person that is not an athlete training three hours per day should be eating. And I didn't understand that. I didn't understand that there was a difference that I can't just copy and paste what, you know, someone who is exercising 45 minutes per day is doing and also be 19 years old and expect me to have a regular period, especially because I already was dealing with like hormone imbalances to begin with since I had my first period. Right. And so that was what led me to 
lose my cycle, to deal with thyroid issues that then impacted my digestive system and so on and so forth. Right. And I see that in so many women. And that's why I think it's so important that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's context to things, but that we understand that you can be in a state where you're hypoglycemic and that's or you're under eating and that's impacting your hormones just as much as someone who's on the other end of the spectrum who may be doing the opposite, who's maybe in an insulin resistant position because maybe they're eating more carbohydrates than their body can metabolize, right? And that's why nutrition is so different based off each person's, you know, bioindividuality because the same practices aren't always healthy and can impact how your hormones function depending on what your genetics and your lifestyle and all of these other variables look like. I'm curious what you think of it all being that, you know, you can have these two ends of the spectrum, right? So not just Gwyneth, but kind of all of the public women who are criticized from this perspective and how it gets internalized in the public or clients you might have. So I think also of Tess Holiday being told she can't possibly have an eating disorder as an obese woman and the public judging her for that as like the opposite side of the coin as Gwyneth, right? And all of these choices come from this effort to conform to diet culture standards to, you know, whatever the modern culture of beauty standards are. How does this show up in your practice and what do you make of it all? I think that there is a lot of misunderstanding and I find that I see a lot of it in women I'm working with that are in their 30s and 40s that their parents are putting some of that pressure on them, that their parents maybe come from like, you know, I think that generationally that people that are in the baby boomer generation grew up with the fat-free, low-fat, more diet culture type mentality and can be really judgmental to, to people based off the way that they look, right? And I see that in so many women I work with where this pressure is coming from their parents where they're like, oh, you can't lose weight or you're overweight. So why don't you just go on Jenny Craig or why don't you just go on system? And then, you know, I then have to educate my client on, look, you know, if, you know, if that's what they're going to say, we have to understand like some of the differences as to, you know, why your body is functioning this way and that there's so many other deeper rooted issues that are going on here and that you looking this way doesn't mean that physiologically you're broken, right? Or that anything's wrong with you. Yeah. Are there imbalances within your digestion, your hormones that we can improve upon that are going to make your metabolism work better? Of course, but there's so many other components that go into this. And so I think it's just so important to understand that just because someone looks a certain way means nothing about their labs or how their body is functioning internally. And I could tell you, like I said earlier, I have seen some of the leanest, most identifying with their sport athletes and, you know, people that look like, okay, they're at a perfect BMI that have the most dysfunctional hormones. And I'll tell you even from my own experience that when I was at my leanest and what some people would say, wow, that's a great body. I was at my unhealthiest. Right. And it's just, something that we have to understand that it doesn't matter what end of the spectrum that you're on, that your external has nothing to do with the way that things are functioning internally, or even the way that you are sleeping, exercising, your nutrition habits, that all of those things don't necessarily correlate with the way that your body's representing. I appreciate that perspective. And I'm going to wrap in a positive way. So I always like to leave our listeners with something actionable that they can take to either be of service to work on themselves or to help others. I'm wondering if you have like, you know, your top ideas for what someone could walk away with today to improve their either metabolism, their hormone health, or to focus on feeling good and being healthy instead of some of these other things that we talked about instead. I think the biggest thing that I would start with is just asking yourself what, how do you want to feel today? And what are the current things that you do on a daily basis that make you feel your best? I think that so often people make decisions out of what they should do or what they see someone else do. And they never really stop to ask themselves, like, does that feel good for me? Or is that really supportive of like the life that I want to live or the way that I want to feel, right? And so sometimes we even have to reassess that because things can change, you know, your situation, your stress levels, all of these things adjust. But 
just asking yourself like every day when you wake up is how do I want to feel and what are those like top three things that are going to make me feel that way? And those might be things that you eat or maybe it's lifestyle practices or it's boundaries that you hold within your health. But I think the more that we can honor our body and that we can work with our body, not against it, then we're always going to feel better internally and that's going to show externally. Such a simple answer with big implications. I love it. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us on The Whole View today. We'll be sharing what we really thought over on patreon.com slash The Whole View, which is the best place to ask questions as well. If you've loved the show that we create and produce ourselves at Patreon, it's a great way to support the show. But so is leaving a review or hitting follow or subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using so that others can find us as well. And we put a list of resources in the show notes for you at realeverything.com. It's extensive, lots of scientific references this week so that you can be assured we're coming from a place of data and science for you. I want to thank you for tuning in today, and we appreciate your willingness to be open to growth through your own personal changes. No one is perfect, but in listening, learning, and unlearning, we can become better versions of ourselves. And if you want to continue this conversation and education for yourself, you can find Lauren at functionalfueling.com and nutrition with low on Instagram. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for having me. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.